So hopefully, you're aware, if you were here last week, we've started a new series in the Minor Prophets. We did a bit of an overview last week to see what was going on throughout the whole time of the Minor Prophets. And we're going to take the next five weeks, including today, to look at five of them, uh, one a week for the next five weeks. Hopefully that makes sense. And today, we're looking at Hosea. And Hosea was prophesying in the time of the divided kingdoms, when Israel and Judah were still uh, ruled by kings and were not in exile. And it was about, we're not entirely certain exactly on the dates of the kings and the prophets, but his job of a prophet was around 750 BC. So, 750 BC. Um, Some of the older ones among you may remember that. So, our title for all the prophets is going to be From Something to Something Else. This one, we're looking at the prophet Hosea, and the title we've come up with is From Promiscuity to Promise. Now that may, you know, that's a bit of a weird title. Hopefully by the end we'll understand why we've chosen that as a title. And Hosea is a really interesting book. I've read through it a few times recently to sort of try and get it into my head, see what's going on. And yeah, a really odd book. And if you were to bring it right up to date, there would be, it, the whole story would be in the papers. There would be scandal after scandal after scandal with this book. And it's like, I tell you what, if you, anyone tells you the Bible is out of date, read the book of Hosea, you'll see just how up to date it is. So, the first three chapters of the book of Hosea are to do with Hosea's life. The rest of the book, up to chapter 14 from 4, so the last 11 chapters, are all about what God is doing using Hosea. So, let me give you a vague idea of what's happening. Hosea is a prophet. The people would have known Hosea was a prophet, somebody who spoke God's word to his people, somebody who um, told people what God's heart was for them. But, unfortunately for Hosea, he wasn't a married chap, he was on his own. And God said to him, if you've got a red church Bible, the book of Hosea appears on page 900. We might, we'll flick through little bits of it. We'll not read all of it, because there's 14 chapters, and we'll be here all day. And according to that book, it's already 20 to 1. So um, it's not, it's 20 to 12. So don't worry. <coughs> so, in chapter 1 of Hosea, God speaks to him, and he says, Hosea, go take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. That's just really odd. Some people, we don't, we're not in, there's just sort of two arguments on this. One side says that the wife he takes, a woman called Gomer, what I've done is forgotten where I am in my slides. Let me carry on. We'll pause there. Currently, in Israel, where Hosea is, Israel is a really awful place. Israel is full of people who are idolatrous. In Hosea chapter 4, it talks about these things. There are people who are stealing. There are people who are rebellious, who are adulterous, who are evil, and who are lying. They are the people of God at this time. Can you imagine that? If the church was full of people like that, you would wonder why they were in a church. It doesn't sound like God's people, does it? I don't know, depending on the churches you've been to, they might. Hopefully they don't. So anyway, God speaks to Hosea and he says, Take to yourself this wife who is adulterous. 
We don't know whether she was or wasn't a prostitute. That's a big argument that goes on. It's not that big. It's not a massive deal. But it's definitely somebody of loose morals. Um, Depending on which version of the Bible you read, you get different words that come up for adulterous, some less polite than others. So he says, God says to him, look, Hosea, go marry an adulterous wife. And he marries this woman called Goma. She's, like I say, she's somebody who has slept with quite a few people. She may be a prostitute, she may not be. And he says, have for yourself children of unfaithfulness. And as he goes through, God names the children. And he, they have three children between them. There's Jezreel. And Jezreel is a valley nearby where God's going to judge Israel, which isn't a great name. If you were going to name your son, you wouldn't, your son or daughter, you wouldn't want to name them after a great battle where your country was defeated. That doesn't sound excellent. In the NIV it, called, it says not loved. In the ESV it says no mercy. And I was reading through in the ESV. Um, and that was the name of the, other, the second child that they had no mercy. And it says in chapter 1, um, from verse 6, it gives, in the NIV it gives you their sort of Hebrew name. It says, Goma conceived, uh, conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. The Lord said to Hosea, call her Loru Hamar, that means not loved or no mercy, for I will no longer show love to the house of Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to the house of Judah, and I will save them, not by bow or sword or battle, or by horses or horsemen, but by the Lord their God. So that's no mercy. And then, he says, uh, after she had weaned that one, Gomer had another son, and the Lord said, Call him Loami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. This Loami means not my people. What a name for three children. I don't know if you have children, or maybe have children one day. I would probably recommend not these names. They are not the best names to give to your children. Um, just because they're not particularly nice. But God is using Hosea and his whole life as a picture of something much bigger. God is using Hosea and his life for the picture of God and his relationship with Israel. Which is where we're going to go today. So, But the issue is, uh, Hosea gets married, he has these three children, and then something awful happens to Hosea. Goma runs off and she starts sleeping with other people again. She's this adulterous wife. She goes off and she's, um, yeah, she's committing adultery left, right and centre. But then God speaks to Hosea again in chapter 3 after this has happened. And Hosea is speaking here and he says, The Lord said to me, this is chapter 3, Go show your love to your wife again. Though she is loved by another and is an adulteress, Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. So I bought her for fifteen shekels of silver and about a homer and a leketh of barley. Then I told her, You are to live with me for many days. You must not be a prostitute or intimate with any man, and I will live with you. For the Israelites will live for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred stones, without ephod or idol. Afterwards, Israelites will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they will come trembling to the Lord and to his blessing in the last days. God says to Hosea, he says, look, 
Your wife's been off with another man. Go find her. Bring her back to yourself and say, look, come back to me. I'm going to love you no matter what. Come and stay with me. I want you to love her with all your heart. And he said, the reason I want you to do that is because that's how I love Israel. So Hosea, this is an awful bit really. Hosea goes to find Gomer. And he goes to find her. And where he finds her is somewhere that is just atrocious. He doesn't sort of spell it out, obviously. I read it in um, somebody who did a lot of research into the background, into the culture. And when he says, I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lacus of barley. can't remember the exact amount of barley that is. It's like a bath, several bathtubs and a half, something like that. I'm sure we can uh, draw you a picture for next week. So there's a stack of barley and 15 shekels of silver. Me and Jai did some calculations this week. If you were to assume the silver was about you know, half purity, that came to around £65 today's money. So not a lot of silver, you know, a little chunk of silver was what he paid for it. Also, the normal price for a slave back then was twice that. 30 shekels of silver was the normal price for a slave. And one commentator said that he paid half that because to everyone else, everyone else, she was just worthless. She wasn't worth having. So he paid half the price of a normal slave. But the way this worked is they'd have like a town square where they would auction the slaves and the people that were being sold. It just sounds awful. So what they would do is they would bring the slaves out into the square and they'd just auction them to the bidders who were there. So if you can imagine, if you were sat in Hosea's seat or stood in his shoes, I didn't know if he was standing or sitting, they brought his wife out into the square and the way they did it with the women was they would strip them naked and they would stand them there so the people could see what they were buying. They could see the merchandise, one of the commentators put it. They put her there naked and they had to bid on her. And can you imagine that for Hosea? I don't know if they had numbers or what. But every time he just had to say, yeah, I'll buy her. I'll have her. I want her. Every time. It must have been awful for Hosea to physically have to buy back his wife, who'd been adulterous, who'd been sleeping with other people. But God says, go and love her. Go and buy her back. And he had to pay half the price he'd normally pay for a slave. So he could see that she was, like to other people, she was worthless. It just seems awful that that's what he had to do. But he buys her back and he takes her and says, look, come and be my wife. Come and be faithful to me. I'll be faithful to you. Come and love me. And God says, you're doing this because this is how I love Israel. This is the picture that I want to use. Now for Hosea, it must have been terrible. If his life was a picture of how God loves Israel, and we know that Israel keeps throughout the whole of the Old Testament, they run off to other gods and they come back to him, they run off and they come back to him. Do you know, at no point in the book of Hosea do we hear these words, and they lived happily ever after. From this point, we don't know whether Gomer stays with him or not. We don't know whether she's faithful or not. But Hosea says, look, I'm going to love you, I'll be faithful to you, I want you to be the same to me. We have no idea whether she is or isn't. And that's where the sort of story of those two is left. But let's move on. So we'll look at this. We'll look at the idolatry that is going on in this book. So we'll look at it in like three little steps. We'll look at what Gomer's idolatry is, and then what Israel's idolatry is, and then what my idolatry is. Gomer seems to be lusting after and desiring and wanting and almost worshipping 
the affection and the physical love from other people over a husband. And even more offensively, she's looking for it over God. She doesn't seek God's love. She doesn't seek the love of a husband. She just wants love from other people. People around her. I mean, how awful is that? And there's times in the Old Testament where the Israelites, God's people, they go off to worship other gods, particularly Baal. And part of that worship is to sleep with the temple prostitutes. And that's something that God says is abhorrent to him. And they're using that and saying that it's worship. They're sinning in a way that is so awful. But saying it's worship to another god. So not only are they turning to other gods, they're using something God's given them, their body that is meant for him, in a way that's sinful. It just seems, you can't understand how, how God can repeatedly come back to his people and say, look, come back to me, I love you. I'm going to love you no matter what you do. He comes back for his people. She also seemed a bit like, uh, she was idolatrous about her own freedom. She wanted her own freedom. I mean, we see this a bit today. Say, I want what I want, and I don't care who I tread on. If I'm, I don't care who I step on to get what I want, I'll just do it because, you know, it doesn't matter. It's all about me. She seems like her freedom is the most important thing. If she wants to sleep with this person, she goes, well, my, it's my body. I'll do what I want with it. Stuff my husband, I'll follow them. It just seems awful. But she became a slave to other people. Can you imagine it for Hosea as well? If she'd been adulterous with a lot of people in the area, when he walks down the street with her, there might be people looking at him thinking, hmm, been there. Can you imagine what that must have been like? He must walk down the street knowing that people have slept with his wife, that he's taken back and he's being faithful to. It must have been awful for him. And it also seemed that she had a real twisted idea of what love was. She didn't seem to know what love really was, how it worked, or how it was being shown to her by her husband. But then when we look at Israel, like I said, Israel, you read through the Old Testament, it often says Israel has turned, turned away from God and they've gone to worship Baal. To be honest, it wouldn't surprise me in the slightest if that was partly because the worship of Baal involved sleeping with a temple prostitute. If you told people that's how you, what happened in church, churches would be rammed today, wouldn't they? I mean, People would think, that is a brilliant idea. Let's go to church and sleep with whoever we can find. But that's not what God says. God gives us our bodies for him. But Israel, they just go off from God so often. They go to worship Baal. And they make inquiries of idols. They build these statues and sticks and stones and they worship them. And there's a great verse in here in chapter 4, verse 11. I hope it's that one. And it says, um, they consult a wooden idol... Uh, and are answered and answered by a stick of wood. You could just how can people who have had God speak to them through a man? He says, "Look, God is saying this to you." They just go, "Don't need that. I'll just ask this bit, this stick that I've found. I'll turn it into a little man." Oh, what, what do you think? Should I do this? Yes, do that. It just seems ridiculous. How can they be answered by a stick of wood? Because they turn from your idols. Don't make idols for yourself anymore. They make for themselves just ridiculous things. They worship other gods in deplorable ways. They worship other gods in ways that make the true and living God so upset, so, yeah, just so sort of tearful because they worship other gods in ways that are sinful. They worship other gods in ways that would, you know, they just make him so upset. And in chapter 4 and verse 19, it says, a whirlwind will, will sweep them away 
and their sacrifices will bring them shame. If you read through in a couple of the other translations, it sort of brings out this idea that they were they were drinking to excess, and in that excess they would have um, sort of like alcohol fueled um, atrocious parties that we actually see in the life of the New Testament in some of the churches. It's amazing how God's people can be so turned away from Him. So really, when we look at idolatry, if I think, what is my own personal idolatry? Well, to work that out, I have to say, what do I love the most? If I think, what is it that I love the most? What is it that, if God said to me, Richard, I want you to give that up, what would I say, I can't do that? What would that be? What would that one thing be? I'd say, I can't give that up. But that's not what God says. God says, look, I want you to give me everything. But our idolatry is sometimes what we want to keep for ourselves. Is there something in your, ha- your life that you feel you wouldn't be able to give up if God asked you to? Something like your house, your car, your job, your reputation, your family, your pride, your wealth, maybe your good looks. For me, at one point, not even joking, it was my bike. At one point, I was really struggling. I, had a bike. I used to ride everywhere when I lived in York. It's flat. It's not like here. It takes ages to get anywhere. In York, you can one side of town to the other, half an hour, no problems. Here, half an hour, one mile. All the hills. I love my bike. It's called Gertrude. I've still got it. But I'm not at the point now where if God said, I want you to give that up, I would say no. I'd say, okay, fine. It's really hilly, so you can have it. I used to love that bike. That's ridiculous, isn't it? I loved a bike. What else would you not give up for God? Some people are so engrossed by their football team that their football team becomes their idol. I met a guy who was, a, was hoping to be able to write a PhD thesis. He's a, he's a pastor of a church in Soliol, in their funny accents. And he said, I was going to write a PhD thesis, thesis on the town of Manchester and places of worship. I was going to say Manchester Cathedral, the Manchester Methods Trust, who are a big church in Manchester, and Old Trafford. And look at the different styles of worship there are in those places. Some people worship their football team. But what are my priorities? What are your priorities? What things do we have that come before God that we would say, I can't give that up, no matter what it is? For us, what comes first? Does God come before everything else? I was reading a book this week. It's called The Ordinary Hero. It's talking about how to live a Christian life in an ordinary way. And the guy that writes it was saying he was watching the football. I don't know who he was watching or who he supports, so that's not needed for the story. He's watching the football and the phone rang. His wife answered it and she said, it's for you. And he thought, oh, but I've just, I'm watching the football. And it turned out it was this guy called Aram. And he said, oh, all right, Aram. And he's moved off to another country. He was part of the fellowship of the church for a good, good amount of, well, not in the church, but he was, a friend of the church that he was a pastor of for a good amount of time. He's moved off to another country. And he said, look, I've just been given this book in my own language and I want you to tell me what it is. So this guy's a pastor of a church and he starts translating the first couple of lines from the beginning of the book. It turns out he's reading the New Testament. This guy's a Muslim and he reads it and he reads all of it and he's starting to think, this is absolutely amazing. This is Oh, this is absolutely brilliant. And he says, what would it mean for me to become a Christian? And he says, for you as a Muslim, it might mean you have to lose your family. 
Sometimes when Muslims convert to Christianity, their family just push them away. If they get baptised, they're often just cut off from their family. Sometimes they lose their wives, their children. And he said, you know what? This is what I want. I want to become a Christian. I want to put God above everything else. He became a Christian. He lost his wife and his six-year-old girl. He said, look, God is everything to me. And for him, even though he goes home to an empty flat... At Christmas, there's no like, like little giggles and running around and unwrapping of presents. He says, I feel more joy than I've ever felt because I've got God in my life. And I can't understand how that works in his mind because of what he's lost. But his desire is for God. His, he doesn't seem to be having his family as his idol or anything. He says, I want God above everything else. I just thought that was amazing. I don't know if I'd be able to be in his shoes and do exactly the same thing. It just sounds such... A devoted person. So for us, where is our idolatry? And are we willing to put God above it? So the next thing we'll look at is the unfaithfulness that we see in the story. So what is Gomer's unfaithfulness? Let's run through them again. Firstly, she's sleeping with other people. She's breaking the marriage covenant that she's made to Hosea. She runs off with them. Ultimately, she's broken the most sacred bond that she had with her husband. She runs off for the sort of for the love of somebody else who doesn't even love her. That's what she does. And then Israel, the history of Israel, is just sprinkled and covered in unfaithfulness towards God. It's such a good thing that when God made his covenant with Israel, he didn't say, I'll be faithful to you if you're faithful to me. He said, I'm going to be faithful to you. You don't need to make a promise, but I want you to follow me. Because if, if that was a deal, he'd have cast them off minutes after they'd made their covenant. I mean, when they look back in their history, they can see that God has been faithful. He brought them out of the land of Egypt as slaves. He brought them through the desert, even though it took them 40 years. He brought them into the promised land that he promised them and he gave it to them. He provided for them. And they were unfaithful to him all the time. And they'd rather complain and grumble about God rather than turn to him and ask him for help and love him. They ran from God to idols, just like Gomer ran from Hosea to other men. And how quick they are to forfeit God's persistent goodness for simple, sinful pleasure that they could get around them. Then the question really is, what is our unfaithfulness in our lives? What is my unfaithfulness in my life? How quickly do we turn from God our unfaithfulness is our rebellion against God it's our sinning against God it's doing the things that God has told us not to do I mean the Bible says that we've all broken God's laws his holy and righteous plans and purposes for our life and for his glory but if you say that to somebody in the street you say look you have broken God's laws you've broken God's holy and righteous design for your life you say that just to a normal person in the street just shrug it off and go, so what? I, I may have. Whatever, it doesn't mean anything to me, that. But when we think about it, God's standard for our lives is Jesus. He wants us to live like Jesus. He wants us to live the perfect life that Jesus did. But to somebody who says, I don't care, how about the standards we set for our own lives? Have we ever felt guilty that we've not done something we felt we ought to? Have we ever like veered off the track that we'd set for ourselves? 
So we've not only do we fall short of God's standards, we fall short of our own. And whatever our standards might be, even if we think we've got high standards, God's standard is much, much higher. But to somebody who's a Christian, you say uh, that you've broken God's commandments, you need to hear about Jesus. Sometimes it's so easy to go, oh, that's true, isn't it? So-and-so should hear about this. Oh, yes, have you? We should tell so-and-so about this because they've done that. They've done that, haven't they? That's, that was really bad. We've all done it. We can st- sit there and think, oh, I wish somebody was here to hear this message. But we've all fallen short of what God wanted us to do. We've all not attained the standard that God has for us. We should all hear this message. We all need to know that we're sinners. We all need to know that we've broken God's law. I've heard it said that some people are not coming to church because church is full of hypocrites. I do like to respond with, well, you'll fit right in. Um, but they don't take that too friendly. But maybe in church there are people who are hypocritical. We like to think, no, we know we're sinners because we know that we need Jesus. But we also have some self-righteousness built into our lives. So we need to do what we can to get rid of that. But the other thing is that our, un- our unfaithfulness to God is literally treason against him. The Bible talks about God as king of the universe. He's set up his laws for us. And if we break them, we're breaking the king's commands. We're, being, we're acting in a way that is like treacherous. It's treason, the things that we do. The things that we do against God are treason against the king of the universe. And it's also an attempt in our lives to usurp God, to knock him off his throne, and to put ourselves on it. We want to say, I don't want you to be king of my life. I want to be king of my life. That's often what our sin means. We're saying, I know what's best for me. I know how I can be most fulfilled. I know how I can enjoy life the best. I'm going to be king of my life. But unfortunately, we don't know better than God. Sometimes we think we might do, and often we realise we don't. So let's move on to see what God has to say on this. In comparison to the idolatry, we see a massive thread through the whole book of Hosea of God's love. Hosea loved his wife, Gomer, and he treated her so kindly and so respectfully. Me and Hannah have just been through a second marriage course. Because before we got married, we went through a marriage course with Ian. But the church that we got married in, they wanted us to do their marriage course as well. We couldn't fit it in before the wedding, so we agreed to do it afterwards. So uh, we've been along, just recently finished, two Saturday mornings. Embarrassingly enough, on the first Saturday morning, they said, and you two are the first people ever to come back and do this after you've been married. When did you get married? Who got the date wrong? Me. So um, that wasn't excellent. I said the 7th of July, not the 9th. I remembered the anniversary of the uh, London bombings instead of our wedding anniversary. So... um, when it comes around to that time next year, please remind me a few days early. But they said in this course that we've done, love is not like a thermometer. Love is like a thermostat. That's one there, that's why I'm pointing. A thermometer adjusts to what's around it. If things are warm, it gets higher. If things are cold, it gets lower, provided you've got it rightly up. A thermostat is not affected by what's around it. It affects the environment. So if it's too cold... It turns the radiators on, it brings temperature up. If it's too hot, it turns them off and lets it cool down. God says, look, I'll set the standard of love 
And whatever happens, I'm going to love you this much. He doesn't say, if you go off me, I'll go off you, like a thermometer does. If the temperature goes down, the thermometer goes down. He says, look, I've set the standard, and that is where my love is going to stay. And Hosea acts like that to his wife. Even though she runs off, he says, look, I've said I'm going to set the standard, and that is where it's going to be. This is a standard of my love. Whatever you do, I'm going to love you, no matter what it is. And that's the same way that God treats us. His standard doesn't vary. His standard is set to the maximum amount of love he can give. And that's where it stays. And the other thing is, when Gomer ran from Hosea, he didn't just say, oh, she's run from me. She's gone. Oh, I'll just sit here and weep. He went to find her. She'd done something awful to him. He went off to find her. He pursued her. He chased after her, knowing that she'd done something wrong. And that's what God does with us. He knows that we're sinful people. He knows that we've done things wrong. But still, he doesn't sit there and go, they've, they've done what I told them not to do. Oh, this is awful. This is terrible. Oh, what can I possibly do? He doesn't do that. He runs after his people. He chases them. And he catches them. He says, I love you no matter what you've done. But the thing is, for Hosea to love Gomer, it probably would mean for him, he'd be told he was stupid by his family. Can you imagine it? If Gomer was a town prostitute and he ran after her to love her again, you can imagine his family saying, you're an idiot. What are you doing? You're wasting your time. But he says, no, I'm going to love her no matter what she's done. And that's what God does with us. We run off from God, we do things wrong, but he comes after us and he chases after us. Personally, you can imagine he'd feel shame that his wife had run off, she'd been sold naked in the market and that she'd been sleeping with other men. But he got over that because he loved her. The shame that he felt, he just put it behind him. The embarrassment of actually sitting in the auction and buying back his naked wife. He had to get over that to love her. The sort of knowing smiles of the people that he passed in the streets. You can imagine all these things would have happened or would have at least gone through his mind when he was with her. But he still chose to love her. And God told him to go back and love her. Like I said before, we have no idea if she stayed faithful to Hosea or not after he brought her back from the market. We have no idea. But we don't even need to know because that's exactly how God treats us. And Hosea and Gomer are pictures in this story of how God and Israel's people are loved. There is chosen people are Israel, there is called people. Like his church is his called and chosen people. And God loves his people even beyond the love that Hosea shows to Gomer. Now that's a good question. How can we justify that? Think about it. They both take unfaithful brides. The church is in the Bible it's described as the bride of Christ. If you look in at the end of the book of Revelation, it talks about the church being Jesus' bride. But both of them take unfaithful brides. Hosea takes Gomer, a known adulteress, maybe even a prostitute. Jesus takes the church as his bride. People who don't always put God first. People who have done wrong. People who have sinned against God. People who choose to worship idols at times over him. Our idolatry and our rebellion is all that falling short. It's all the breaking of God's laws. But then, when it comes to it, like Hosea bought Gomer back from the, uh, from the market, God buys us back at a price. And he doesn't pay in silver or in barley, but he pr- pr- pays the price 
of his son, the Lord Jesus. You can almost say that Jesus becomes a goma for us. Because Jesus is stripped bare when he's crucified. All his clothes are taken from him. He's sold by his friend for some silver. He's betrayed by Judas for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus' body was beaten, it was abused. He was paraded through the streets in a way that Goma was. And then Jesus does something that Hosea and anyone else could, can never do. Jesus is taken by the Romans, he's killed, he's beaten, he's crucified, and he's stuck up on the cross. All the punishment that Jesus went through was all the punishment that we personally deserve for our idolatry, our unfaithfulness to God. Really, we've all acted in the same way that Goma has. We've acted in unfaithfulness to God. We've gone against him, we've done things that we shouldn't have done. We've made our own false gods and our own little idols and given ourselves to them at times. But because of Jesus and what he does, Jesus takes that punishment, the punishment that God should rightly give to us for doing that, for putting him second, for putting other things first, and he puts that on his son. Jesus becomes and takes the punishment that we deserve. Jesus dies on the cross the death, dies on the cross the death that we should really die. And why does he do it? He does it because he loves us that much. So let's finish briefly by looking at this faithfulness. Last week I mentioned right at the beginning of the Bible, in the book of Genesis and in chapter 3, when God's dishing out the punishments for the, uh, the fall, when Adam and Eve eat the apple or the fruit in the Garden of Eden, God sets it up right from the off with some hope. Before he even gets to the punishment of Adam and Eve, he says to the serpent, he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and he will strike uh, and you will strike his heel. He says, my faithfulness is there, right at the beginning. As soon as you've done the first thing wrong, I'm saying, look, there's hope for you in the future. What he's talking about there is saying, look, from Eve, somewhere down the line, someone's going to come who's going to defeat the evil one. He's going to defeat Satan. He's going to defeat all the evil that there will ever be. And that is Jesus. He comes up there and he gives them hope as soon as they do something wrong. And God is faithful not only to himself and to his own word, but he's faithful to people like you and me. God says something and he acts on it no matter what we do. He acts like a thermostat in that way. Whatever we do, God sets a standard and he keeps it. He never changes it. God's faithful to people like Gomer, people that have given themselves to others. And when God makes a promise, he never breaks it. God says that if, we're, if we come to him, if we confess our sins, if we say that Jesus is Lord and we confess that he raised from the dead, he'll save us. If God's been faithful all this time with the people of Israel who wandered off to other gods and then came back to him, he'll be faithful with us as well. He's unchanging and he's the only safe place that we can afford to build our lives just because he never changes. So really, what does that mean for you and me? God loves us and he's shown that because he sent his only son to come and die for us. Jesus came and died in our place so that we can truly know and love him. God's faithfulness means that he will never break any of his promises that he has made to us. 
all of them that he's made in the Bible, we know we can trust because of his love for us and his faithfulness to us. In chapter 14 of Hosea, the last chapter, um, God says that he can provide everything that his people need. He says, I can provide whatever it is that's going wrong. I can look into it and I can provide for you. I can take care of you. And then in chapter 14, verse 2, he says this. Well, I'll read from the beginning. He says, Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, Forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. For in you, fatherless, find compassion. He's saying there, look, what you need to do is you need to turn back to God and just say, take your words. He says, take your words with you. He says, turn back to God. Say to him, forgive me. Forgive everything that I've ever done. And receive us graciously, that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Then they say, Assyria cannot save us. No longer am I going to put my trust in the powers of this world. Assyria were the superpower of the day. Later on we see that they take over Israel and take it into captivity. They were who they were trying to put their trust in. They thought if they were friends with them, they might save them. So we're not going to trust them anymore. We're going to trust God only. But for us to turn back to God, to speak to him, and to return to him, it means, because of his love and his faithfulness, that can lead us to repentance. Because God is loving, we can take back our words to God and say, forgive me for what I've done. Repentance is, is a, a word of sort of two meanings. There are two meanings in it. Firstly, basically as Christians, or as people in general, we, we start off our lives walking one way. We walk this way, away from God. We're leaving God behind and we're just going the way that he doesn't want us to do. So the first part of repentance is to realise that what we've been doing, what we've been living, what we've been saying, what we use our time and our money and our efforts for, and not what God wanted us for to use them for in the first place. So repentance is firstly turning around. It's the act of turning around, away from what we were, to what we can be in God. We look towards God. And the second part of it is to move towards him. So repentance isn't just turning around and seeing that God's lovely. It's turning from what we used to love. Turning around seeing that God is lovely. And wanting to walk towards him because of what he can give us. God changes the direction of our lives and the path that our lives are set on. And he wants us to become more and more like the Lord Jesus. So if we know that God loves us, and if we know that God is faithful, anything that we've ever done, we can confess it with our mouths to God and say, God, we're really sorry for what we've done wrong. Please forgive me. Because he's loving and faithful, God will respond to that by forgiving us for what we've done wrong. He'll say, you can come to me, and I'll forgive you all your sins. We can change the direction of our lives and God will take us. And that's basically a bit about the story and the life of Hosea. We don't know, like I say, whether Gomer was faithful, but he loved her just the same. God loves us even though we're not faithful in our whole lives. So I'll pray and then we'll hand over. Father God, we thank you that you love us. Father, we thank you that you love us so much that you are willing even to send the Lord Jesus Christ down 
that he would come, that he would live his perfect life and that he would die upon the cross and that he would come back to life three days later, that he would raise him back to life saying that his sacrifice was sufficient. And Father, we thank you that he is raised and he's with you in heaven now. Father, thank you that if we believe and trust in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and we confess him as Lord of our lives, you'll forgive us all our sins. Father, help us to be faithful to him. Father, help us to become more and more like him. Father, thank you that Jesus is lovely. Father, thank you that he is desirable. Father, thank you that he is something that we can want to work to, like, to be like. And Father, help us to do that with your strength and with your spirit inside us, guiding us and helping us all the way. And Father, thank you that it's not anything that we can do, but it's because you set the standard. You said, I'm going to love you no matter what. Father, help us to understand that and accept that and turn to you in repentance. Because you'll always hear, you'll always love and you'll always be faithful. Amen.